the enigmatic men of mystery, the wise men who came from the east whose familiar silhouette strides across a million Christmas cards and forms the dramatic backcloth to the birth narratives of Jesus of Nazareth. Who were they? Why did they pursue the search, the sacred quest, with such vigour and tenacity? And what was their reaction when they reached the end of their exhausting journey? What's not to love about T.S. Eliot's wonderful poem, The Journey of the Magi? A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The way's deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter, and the camel's galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces and the silken girls bringing sherbet, then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters, and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a water mill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door, dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued, and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I have seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. One of the many blessings of having a daughter with a keen interest in astronomy is that sometimes you find yourself at 2am lying on your back on a stubble field deep in the countryside staring at the stars. You see, you have to go where there is little light pollution and you need to go when there's no cloud and you need to go when the sky is particularly interesting. 2am it seems is about right apparently. So it's get out of bed, Dad, get your clothes on, get the car started and take me to the darkest field we can find. Mind you, you can see what he meant, the poet David, when he reflects that when he looks at the stars, he wonders at the greatness of the universe and becomes acutely aware of his own insignificance. I look at the heavens, the moon and the stars, the work of your hands, and I wonder, 
What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you think of him? Study of the universe in its vastness and complexity rightly generates in any thinking person a sense of wonder, an awareness that, however much we know, actually we know very little. For example, travelling at the speed of light, 180,000 miles per second, it'll take you 12 seconds to get to the moon. It'll take you 8 minutes to get to the sun. And even at that speed, it would take you 4.3 years to reach the nearest star. You would need 400 years to reach the North Star. And to cross our galaxy, the Milky Way, would take 120,000 years travelling at the speed of light. And astronomers now reckon that there are 100 million galaxies. Study of the universe and reflection upon its perplexing scope and mind-sapping scale should make wise men and women of us all prepared to be humbled by the vastness of our ignorance. How partial and inadequate is our knowledge, how hard we must look to find understanding. But were these wise men astronomers or astrologers? It's an important distinction. While most of us will listen with respect to the scientific insights of a, a bona fide astronomer, we might wish to reserve a certain degree of incredulity when offered solutions to our life, to our life problems, by the astrologer in our daily newspaper. In the ancient mind, however, these distinctions were perhaps less rigidly in place, and the appearance of a new celestial phenomenon, a star, a comet, whatever, cause for rejoicing and scientific whoops of delight when located by the Hubble telescope in our times, would be reason enough in ancient thinking to assume that some event of cosmic significance was unfolding somewhere. For them it was about a moment of revelation offered to the world and they must pursue that moment and seize it. The rise of a new star heralded in their way of thinking a moment in which the curtain would be pulled back and humanity would have a chance to peek into the will of God, catch a glimpse of his purposes. And they mustn't let that moment slip through their grasp. They had to risk everything, leave everything else. Because in the way in which they saw the world and the interpretation they put on cosmic events, this was too significant, too crucial. They had to go. They had to face the stares of disbelief from their community, their family, their friends, and make the journey of the Magi that was to become an event so engraved upon the consciousness of history that their shadows against the skyline would be emblematic, uh, an icon, a classic picture of the search for the human spirit, the search for truth and meaning. You could never have imagined, and they could never have imagined, that their response to the mystery of a new thing happening in the world, the possibility that something of cosmic significance was happening or about to happen, that that would, over the centuries, be celebrated across the world in a million nativity plays and countless singings of We Three Kings of Orient are. For them, it was just what they had to do, where they had to go, or miss the moment, the earth-shattering moment. It's that excitement of discovery that Isaiah speaks of so forcefully. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
in a dark world full of unknowns and swirling mists of confusion. When God's light breaks over the gloom, when the moment of enlightening truth is upon us, we must embrace that light and delight in that hope. Turn from all our lesser preoccupations and seize the day, make the crucial discovery. That in this shockingly intimidating universe, we are not alone, we are not forgotten, we're not left to stumble in blind panic in the terrifying darkness, but we are invited to share the light, to understand the truth, to be enfolded by the love. John describes it in his Gospel. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never, will never, can never overcome it. So they made their exhausting journey, endured the suspicious looks and suffered the privations, a dangerous, crazy journey. And as it turned out, all for what? You can't escape the sense of shock and surprise. The magi, the wise men, have been working with traditional categories. Usually it all hung together, you see. Usually there were stars and royal births and palaces and gold and kings and princes. Certainly there was no place in that traditional list for stables, unmarried mothers, bleary-eyed shepherds, deadly danger, fleeing refugees, murderous, quizzling kings. The conclusion of their journey brought the requirement of a radical rethink, a category shift, like they were cruising in fourth gear and suddenly with a screeching, grinding squeal of disbelief they had to throw the car into reverse. Unexpected hardly does it justice. Shocking barely covers it at all. But they know the truth when they meet it. They are wise men after all. And they kneel and worship. How did they know what insight, what truth was revealed to them there that brought them freely and happily to their knees? Speculation is merely that speculation. Though you would be justified in surmising that they would ask probing, searching questions of the mother, check out the background to the remarkable turn of events. And you can be sure that even though they still had questions, gaps, they would have no hang-ups about recognising the limits, their limits. Wise men do that. The tomb of the Venerable Bede in Durham Cathedral has a wonderful prayer of his beside it, in which he acknowledges that though he was considered the smartest man in England in his day, all the knowledge he had was of no account compared with the delight and wonder of knowing and serving God. And I pray thee, loving Jesus, that as thou hast graciously given me to drink in with delight the words of thy knowledge, so thou wouldst mercifully grant me to attain one day to thee, the fountain of all wisdom, and to appear forever before thy face. No in-your-face human arrogance there, just a recognition of limitations. And the visitors from the East were too shrewd and too canny to fall into the trap of thinking that their little minds could cope, smart cookies though they were, with the mysteries of God's plans and the wonder of his love. They had to receive that gift and rejoice in it long before they would ever even begin to understand it, grasp it, define and analyse it. 
Such is the way of faith. And it would not be stepping beyond the facts to imagine that sensing the ugliness and the capacity for violence of Herod the king, and then confronted by the innocence and loveliness of the child, they knew with an intuitive certainty that here in this simple place, with this astonishing story unfolding, that here was the better way. This was the truer hope for humanity. One final important element in the story. Now that they had come, these distant travellers, from another culture, a, a different belief system, now that the Gentile world was involved in the revelation of God, the whole situation required a new set of boundaries, and suddenly there were no boundaries. These foreigners and their adoration gave the lie to the idea that this was merely some little local difficulty, some minor twist to the Jewish tale that had no currency or worth beyond the borders of Palestine. There was no chance now of containment, that the story would be told and would live and die within the confines of Judaism, that, that the Jewish faith would deal in its own way with the hopes and fears of all the years met in Bethlehem that night. And the rest of the world would neither hear nor care about it. Oh no. Now it had all opened up to include the whole world. The non-Jewish world was invited to pay homage to this child. Matthew, of all the gospel writers, the most Jewish, right from the start, establishes the credentials of the Saviour as the Saviour of the world. The whole wonderful, crazy world. Matthew's poetic drama invites us to see how, like a, a supernova of revelation, the light of God has burst across the world and everyone can share in the moment of revelation. Everyone can enjoy the discovery that God is with us. God is for us. The light of the world is come. Amen.